right, so tonight's lesson, the triune God created and preserves the world. We'll be in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 for the, the seven days of creation. Um, that's going to be showing up on your screen here in just a minute. Here we are. Uh, the beginning, Genesis 1 and into Genesis 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was the evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there's morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. 
Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the word of our God. Uh, so that is Genesis 1, um, 1 to 31. So all of Genesis 1, as well as the opening three chapters of, or three verses rather, of Genesis chapter 2. All right, so getting into it, um, you see in the bullet points, if you're following along in your workbook, um, there are two things that, that are highlighted for us here. The first chapter tells us how it all began. God created all things with the power of his word. And then secondly, from today's creation account, we learn much about who God is and what he is like. Um, and then there's a little part in the red box on the right-hand side, and we'll dispense with this right away, I suppose because we had begun with that reading from the Apostles' Creed, what we call the first article of the Apostles' Creed. Um, and so that red box on the right-hand side says that a creed is a confession of faith that allows a group of people to clearly and concisely confess what they believe, that is, to state what they believe. The, the Christian church has historically accepted three creeds as expressions of our faith. First of all, the Apostles' Creed, which is a summary of Jesus, the, the teaching that Jesus taught, not actually written by the Apostles. Uh, secondly, the Nicene Creed. And then thirdly, the Athanasian Creed. We'll study the Apostles' Creed in detail over the next couple of lessons. And the other two creeds are going to be printed in the appendix for us. Just a second. I think I have one more thing to adjust here. All right, there we are. I think I've got uh, the sound <laughs> as, as good as it's going to be. Um, so Genesis 1, and tonight we're looking at really the first article, the content of the first article. The first article is a, in the Apostles' Creed, really, is a summary of what the Bible says about these things. And it's, it's an easy way to give us a handle on what are we talking about when we're talking about creation and preservation and all those good words that we're going to be learning tonight. All right, so according to Genesis 1 verse 3, what tools did God use to form everything that is around us? Um, kind of had that refrain throughout the entire, uh, the entire reading of Genesis chapter 1. If you look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 as an example, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So pretty straightforward, you know, <laughs> um, God said it, and there was. So what tool did God use? Um, he used his word, number one, um, his word, plain and simple. And number two, um, how long did it take God to make the world? Um, Looking at what Genesis 1 says, looking at what God says in his Bible, we have to say, well, it's six regular 24-hour days. And a couple of reasons for that. Um, there was morning, there was evening the first day. 
and that kind of refrain as he's going on. Um, we've got the creation of the sun, moon, and stars on day four, even though, even though we have light um, morning and evening happening on days one, two, and three already. But everything that we see looks exactly like it happens now. There's no, there's no hint of God saying it having to happen, and then it takes, you know, a real fact it's actually happened. God said, and it was. Um, and and there's, a, there's a little bit more to that. If you have any questions about that, you know, how can we say based on, based on the Bible, how can we say that God created the world in six regular 24-hour days and then the seventh day he rested? Um, and you can contact me down in the show notes um, or in the, the video notes, I suppose, if you have any questions and we'll go from there. Which gets us to our first key term toward uh, the bottom of, of our workbook page. And the key term is creation. Creation is, means that God created the universe, right? God created everything that exists in six 24-hour days from nothing using his word. Um, and so obviously first, the first part, God created the universe, God created everything. Uh, secondly, in these regular days, and he took six of them to do all the creating, the seventh day he created the gift of rest. Um, God created everything that exists. He created it out of nothing, and he used his word as the only tool. So God created the universe in six 24-hour days from nothing using his word. Our other key term, evolution. Um, mankind's theory that the universe slowly developed over the course of billions of years. This theory denies that God created anything. I know there's a lot more nuance to it than that, but that is, that's the heart of it. That's the core of it. This idea that there's a continual progression over many, 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 many years. And, um, and that directly contradicts what God says in his word. Um, in his word, God says he created, the, he created the world. He said it and it happened. And we even have, um, we'll see, as we'll see in just a little bit, when God created Adam and Eve, the first two people, they weren't you know, grunting half humans. They were fully formed, fully developed um, people with intellect and knowledge and, and accountability to God. Because that's the bottom line. When we get to evolution, as we'll see on the next page, um, it has no solution for sin and no answer for a guilty conscience. <laughs> Not to get too far ahead of ourselves. Uh, number three, in an attempt to merge the concept of evolution with the biblical teaching of creation, some people say that the days, quote-unquote, mentioned in Genesis 1 are actually really, really long periods of time. However, the biblical account very clearly shows that such ideas are wrong and that the days in Genesis 1 are actually normal 24-hour days. But what in chapter 1, verse 5, 8, 13, 19, 21, 23, and 31 tell you? How do we tell that? Um, because I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want you to recognize it for yourself. Um, right here is verse 8. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And we have that same phrase. There's evening, there's morning the third day. Um, verse 19. There's evening, there's morning the fourth day. It sounds like oddly repetitious here, right? There's evening, there's morning, the fifth day. There's a little bit more detail in day six. 
but there is still evening and morning the sixth day. All right, so we have that, that phrase happening, that sentence happening again and again. There's evening and there's morning um, with monotonous reliability. <laughs> and so this is really God emphasizing it. Um, he didn't just say it once and then assume that you know how the world works. And so therefore you can extrapolate from there and say, oh, there was evening and morning the first day. And so there must have been the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, sixth day there must have been evening and morning god emphasizes it like friends this is important which um kind of gets us into our next key term um we we already had creation we had evolution and then there are some who try to blend the two to put it together and we call that theistic evolution theistic um you see the word theist meaning god um, or kind of like, you know, if we study theology, it's the, the knowledge of God that we are studying. So theistic evolution is the false idea that God created the universe using the process of evolution and that the days in Genesis are actually very long periods of time. Um, and that's wrong because it doesn't match with the text. It doesn't match with, we have um, additional verification from the book of Exodus that that god draws a direct comparison between the sabbath day law for the israelites and the creation of the week that god created in genesis chapter one and two we also have direct attestation from jesus christ himself when jesus refers to the creator um, the one who made them male and female when he's talking i think in matthew chapter 19 talking about marriage and divorce um, or maybe marriage at the resurrection i think he's talking marriage and divorce there in genesis chapter or in matthew chapter 19. so theistic evolution the false idea that god created the universe and that the days are actually very long periods of time which gets to the the image um, in your workbook um, if you don't have a workbook, it's, it's a comparison between creation and evolution. Um, creation is God's eyewitness account. Evolution is human theory. It's widely accepted, but that in and of itself doesn't make it true. Um, creation took place in six days. Evolution took place over billions of years. Uh, creation began out of nothing. Evolution began with primitive cells. Um, as far as where those cells came from and where, where anything came from, evolution doesn't have an answer for that. Um, creation happened by God's word, and evolution was this uninterrupted process of chance. Um, and if you just, you know, like if you have, what, a billion monkey, monkeys hammering away at, at typewriters long enough, they don't get the works of Shakespeare. Um, no, you won't. Even if you let those monkeys type away at the keyboard or at the, at the typewriter for a really long time. Creation, and here's where the rubber hits the road. Um, you, because there are some who would say, well, okay, pastor, but you know, I've, I have bigger fish to fry. What's, what's the real take home from this? What's the practical value? Um, creation says that people are special creatures, a special creation of God. Evolution says we're just the most highly developed animals. And thus the rules and morality that animals have is the morality that we should have. And the end that animals have is the end that we should have. That humans are no more to be preferred than any other animal on the face of the earth. And, um, and the bottom line, 
creation, the fact that God created us proves that we are accountable to him, um, as opposed to the idea that we are master of our own fate, master of destiny. Nobody can tell me any different. Number four, as we study creation, we learn some things about God from what he made, how he made it, and why he made it. This is part of the natural knowledge of God that we talked about in lesson one. Read the verses below, Psalm 145, 2 Timothy, uh, Deuteronomy 33, and Jeremiah 23. What are some things we can learn about God from nature, which are reinforced in God's word? Uh, Psalm 149, verse nine, 145, verse 9, The Lord is good to all. His compassion extends over all he has made. So what do you learn about God from nature? That his word, again, reiterates for us that God has compassion on his creation. Um, that he continues to take care of it. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. That God is faithful. Um, and we see that, that even though people mess it up, <laughs> even though people murder each other and, uh, and destroy creation, God still makes sure that the sun rises and the rain falls, um, that God remains faithful to what he has made. Deuteronomy 33, verse 27, uh, letter A just means the first half of the verse. The everlasting God is a dwelling place and his eternal arms are under you. So what do we learn about God that we can see in nature and also in the word of God, in the natural knowledge and the revealed knowledge of God, um, that God is eternal. And there's another verse from the book of Ecclesiastes that God says um, that he has written eternity on the hearts of man that people know, that all people know deep down, that there's more to life than this. Even if we deny that and try to forget about it. And Jeremiah 23, verse 24. Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. That God is everywhere, that you can't run away from God. And, um, and maybe we recognize that most clearly in the natural knowledge, when we, natural knowledge of God, when we talk about the conscience, that, um, that you might feel just as guilty sitting on the highway in your car as you would um, sitting in a church, as you would sitting and staring at a mountaintop, that you can't run away from the feeling of guilt. Um, and that is, you know, another further proof that, um, that God is everywhere. So number four, um, kind of the, the summary, that God is powerful, wise, kind, loving, and faithful. Um, and we'll also get even omnipresent in just a little bit. Those are some things that we can know about God by looking at the world around us. And the person who maybe got the closest without having scripture, without using scripture, the closest to knowing anything about God was an older Greek philosopher named Aristotle. Um, and he came up with most of what we see on the screen here, that God must be powerful and wise and kind and loving and faithful. But Aristotle, sadly, um, didn't know about how to deal with his own sin. He didn't know about God's promise of a savior. Our next key term, eternal. Um, we've got a number of key terms here that we have about God. Eternal means no beginning and no end. Um, 
sometimes we think of that just as having no end, <laughs> but it has no beginning as well. That God is eternal, that there is no point at which he began, that there there's never been a time when God did not exist, our triune God, the true God. Um, and he has no end. He doesn't age. He doesn't, he's not going to die. <laughs> um, he has no beginning and no end. Pretty easy. Uh, top of the next page, omniscient. Whoa. If you see right in the middle, S-C-I-E-N, toward the end, I guess, um, kind of like the word science. Um, science is, the, is, is really a word for knowledge. Uh, what can we prove? What can we know that is certain and provable? Uh, that's what science is. But it comes from this word that means knowledge. And then knowledge that is omni, um, like an omnidirectional microphone, is a microphone that picks up all around, um, plain and simple. So all knowledge. <laughs> the, these words kind of define themselves once you recognize the parts that make up the word. Um, omniscient, meaning all knowledge. God knows all things. Um, he knows what is, what isn't, what what is hidden, what is public. Um, he knows what was, what will be, what could have been, and both in the past and in the future, as well as every other possibility, as well as every other reality. So God knows all things. Wow. Um, next key term, omnipotent. Omnipotent, potent meaning like powerful or strong. Um, God is all-powerful. We often use the term almighty to refer to God being all-powerful, meaning that he can do all things. Um, there's nothing that he cannot do that is still in line with his nature and character. Like, can God sin? No, because God is holy. Um, but God can do anything. We'll talk about that more in a later lesson as well. Um, next key term about God, omnipresent. Uh, present everywhere. So God is present everywhere all the time. Um, and, and he is present, you know, generally, um, you know, if you're sitting on a chair or driving in a car, God, God is making sure that that chair retains all of all the things that make it a chair, that if he were not there holding it together, then that chair would just dissolve and explode into atoms. Um, and your car would disappear. But God is making sure that it retains all the things that it's supposed to be doing. Um, but God is, even though God is present everywhere, he is also present in a special way, um, like in, in church, you know, when we have the preaching of the word and the reading of the word there, God is present, um, and he sends his Holy Spirit to create faith when and where it, it pleases him. We had just talked about the fact that God is omnipresent, that God is present everywhere all the time. Um, but he's present in a special way in his in his service when his word is shared, when his Christians gather together, and he is present in a special way when his Christians make use of his sacraments, the Lord's Supper and Holy Baptism. All right, so far so good. Takes us to number five. What words in Genesis 1 verse 26 tell us something about God that is very different from human beings? It's there on your screen. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds in the sky and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that crawls on the earth. What do we see here? Um, God said, let us make man in our image. There's a plural right there, that God is different. 
Um, let's make God, let us make man in our image. So number five, the plural pronouns, us and our, <laughs> tell us that God is very different from humans. But at the same time, we have singular words and singular verbs for God doing things, which kind of gets us into the diagram on the next page. And in Luther's Catechism helped to explain the triune God. What can we learn from this? Um, if you have your workbook, feel free, feel free to flip over there. And if you have the little, the new blue catechism, the dark blue catechism, it's on page 126. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of describe it for us here, that God is triune. We call this a mystery. Mystery, not like Sherlock Holmes, we got to figure it out. But mystery like this is something that we cannot perceive and we cannot um, cannot see based on the natural knowledge of God, based on our human power and ability. But it is a mystery because God has to reveal it to us. Um, God is triune, is not something that we would figure out by looking at the world around us, but God reveals it to us in his word. And so um, we have this, this concept, this reality that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, um, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each is God. And uh, that's about as much as you can say. Um, the Spirit is a real person, but without a body, not like the person as in people, humans like you and me, but um, a person meaning that which is in itself, that which is itself, and God does not change. He is holy, eternal. God is love. God is merciful. He is omniscient, meaning he knows all things. Omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful or almighty. Um, omnipresent, he is everywhere at all times, and he is compassionate. Um, and belief in this triune God is necessary for salvation. If somebody believes in a different God, or even, yeah, somebody believes in a different God, they're not going to heaven. That's a total non-starter because they're not worshiping the one true God. And they have excluded themselves from his grace. Uh, so number six, what do we learn from this? God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but not three gods. There's only one God. God is three persons in one God. We will update that on the, the key term here, Trinity. God is a triune God. God is three persons in one God and one God in three persons. Um, not three gods, not three, you know, beings, um, but one being who is three persons. The Trinity is that, that key term there, Trinity or triune God. The Trinity is an example of a truth that is beyond our human comprehension. We can try to describe this truth, illustrate it, and explain it, but we'll never fully understand how God can be triune. Um, there's that word triune, Tri, like triangle, meaning three. <laughs> triangle has three angles. And un, like uno, um, meaning one. God is three, one. We had to, you know, had to create a new word to describe, um, to describe God the way the Bible describes him. There are other such truths in God's word. We call these teachings articles of faith. 
We trust what God has told us, even if we don't understand it. Um, so our key term, articles of faith. This is the bottom of page 15. Teachings that we trust are true because God says that they are true, even if they contradict our fallen human minds. Um, and I think I adjusted that definition just a little from what might be in your book. Because um, Christianity is is logical and rational, but at the same time, we submit to the word of God with the recognition that, that our human brains are corrupted by sin. And so when there comes a collision between what my fallen sinful human brain wants to believe and what the Bible says is the truth, then the Bible must be the winner, <laughs> right? All right, so number seven, top of the next page, moving right along. How did the triune God show that mankind, that people, just making sure there, how did the triune God show that mankind is the most important part of what he has made? Look at Genesis 1 verse 28, it's there on your screen. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So how did God show that mankind is the most important part of what he has made? Well, God put people in charge of creation. He said, you take care of it. <laughs> um, and, and not like, you know, shoving it off on them and here's a responsibility, but here's a joyful thing for them to do. Because in this time, they still weren't corrupted by sin. Um, at this time, God said, here's a job for you to do, and they were delighted. God put his people in charge of creation. Which kind of gets to this other term. We, this, this lesson, more than most, is kind of heavy on the terms because we need to have some understanding of these in order to talk a little bit more quickly and profitably in the later lessons. Um, but there on your screen, humankind was created in the image of God. That's what we saw back in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. But that image was lost as a result of sin. Read Genesis 5, verses 1 through 3, Colossians 3, verses 9 to 10, Romans 8, verse 29, and 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, for a summary of the image of God. Genesis 5. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them, and on the day they were created, he named them mankind. Adam lived 130 years, and he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his own image, and he named him Seth. So there, you know, we're talking about some passing of time between the creation of Adam, then we had the fall into sin, and then we have Adam um, having Seth at some point further down the line here, about 130 years later. And... Um, and it's very telling that, you know, there in chapter five, we hear that God made people in the likeness of God, but after the fall into sin, Seth was born in the likeness of Adam, according to his own image. Uh, Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10. Do not lie to each other, since you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is continually being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. So the old self has its own image, 
the new self is being renewed in knowledge. Um, that is, you know, the Bible in line with the image of God. Well, that's helpful. How about this one? Romans 8, verse 29. Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to, you got it, the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Um, so there we have the image of God described for us again, that this image is seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in his perfection, his holiness. And 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. In the case of those people, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from clearly seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the da -da -da, God's image. So that leads us to our key term, and hopefully that gives us a little bit of a snapshot background. Key term, image of God. Humans were created in perfect harmony with God, knowing God's will and wanting what God wanted. We lost the, and that, that is the image of God, that what God wants is what people wanted, um, that perfection, that holiness. We lost that image through the fall into sin, and we re regain it again in, through faith in Jesus as our Savior. But even, even, even there, in this world, as long as we are hindered by sin, um, that image of God will still need to be renewed. It's not a completed thing, this side of heaven. And we don't have it fully restored until we will one day be in heaven. Then we'll, the image of God will be fully restored. What is that? Perfect harmony with God, knowing God's will perfectly and wanting to do what God wanted perfectly. And we have that here on earth in part as believers, but not completely. Genesis gets on to our second section of the night. Genesis 2, verses 4 through 25, God creates Adam and Eve. Um, and we see our two bullet points before we get into it. This section recounts the account of cre the creation of people, which was covered briefly in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. You know, Genesis 1 is the overview, and then we zoom in on the important part. That's basically how God had Moses write the entire book of Genesis. He first had the overview, and then he zooms in on the important part. And secondly... God showed his love by creating humans in a special way and giving them special blessings. So, Genesis 2, beginning in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When God, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. All right, there we have Genesis 2, uh, 4 through 25. God creates Adam and Eve. There we are, sorry. There we are. Number eight. What was different about the way God created Adam and Eve compared to the rest of creation? Listed for you there. Um, God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That's how he became the man. And then secondly, God didn't use more dirt to create Eve. Um, God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, took a rib, and closed up the, with flesh the place where it had been. So, plain and simple, God slowed down and didn't just use his word like he did in chapter 1, um, where he said, let there be and there was. He formed Adam and Eve slowly and carefully, and in a way that was intertwined with one another. Um, they were dependent upon one another in a good way. Why did God take such slowness and care <laughs> in creating Adam and Eve? Well, to show that humankind, that people, humankind is the most important part of his creation. Number 10, we'll talk more about marriage when we get to the sixth commandment in lesson 15. But here we see that God established marriage. What was Adam missing? And if you think back, this takes place during the sixth day of creation. Genesis chapter 1 gives us the overview, has a quick look at the sixth day of creation. And then here, Genesis chapter 2 zooms in on the fact. And all the way through almost all of you know, the first five days of creation, God saw all that he had was made was very good. There's evening in the morning, the first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, until we get to verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper for him who is a suitable partner for him. And verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the sky and to every wild animal. But for Adam, no helper was found who was a suitable partner for him. All right, so God says, hey, this is not good. Adam was missing a helper. All right. Um, Adam was missing a helper. We'll talk about that, about that a little bit more when we get to the lesson on marriage. Number 11. How did Adam respond when Eve was brought to him? Verse 23. The man said, now this one is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Um, and there's even a little aha 
<laughs> this is the one. Adam is basically jumping up and down with joy. Adam responded, he rejoiced with God's gift. This woman that is suitable helper, this partner that God had brought to him and made for him. Verse 12, the thinking question. You got to think about this a little bit. In their perfect world, how do you think Adam and Eve treated each other? We'll talk about that more when we get to the lesson on marriage as well. Well, there's this mutual respect and mutual love. That's about as succinctly as you could say it, I suppose. Number 13, God gave Adam and Eve one command um, about that tree in the middle of the tree or the tree in the middle of the garden. Do not eat from it um, regarding their new home. They're not, eat to, not to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why did he give them this command? Oh, God is so unfair. He put us in this beautiful garden where there are trees of every sort that we could eat from all of them. But God is so unfair because he's withholding this one tree from us. We can't have it. No. Um, it's a perfect world. But by obeying God's command, they were demonstrating their love. By obeying God's command, they were worshiping him. As um, even, even one of the New Testament books toward the end of the New Testament says, this is love for God to obey his commands. They were demonstrating their love for God by listening to what he said. Which gets to our key term, free will. Um, and this is very particular. Free will is the ability to choose to do right or wrong. This is how God created Adam and Eve, and we don't really have that ability. Sometimes you know, Christians really get caught up on this idea of free will, and um, I don't know if it's something uniquely American, um, that that is one of the emphases that comes out in our culture, but it's wrong. We don't have free will in spiritual matters. Um, you have the free will, you know, do I want to wear an orange shirt or a red shirt today? Or in some cases, you know, I'll wear both orange and red today. Do I want to wear a blue hat or a stocking cap for the Canadians among us? Um, you have freedom in those external things. Do I want to drive a silver car or a, or a red car or a gold car or a truck? Um, you have freedom in those things. But when it comes to spiritual matters, that is the ability to sin or refrain from sin for the right reasons, <laughs> um, to make any movement toward God, we don't have any freedom to do that. We do not have the ability to do right or wrong. All we can do is wrong. All right, gets into our third scripture section for tonight. From 1 Kings chapter 17, um, an example of how God continues to care for his creation. He didn't just create the world and, and say, all right, go on your way. Um, good luck with it all. God continues to provide for his creation. We'll be in 1 Kings chapter 7. Um, if you're following along with a paper Bible, 1 Kings chapter 7, or 17, sorry. 1 Kings 17, beginning in verse 7. Um, this, is, this is later on. This is later on after, after, King, after King David, if you know, like David and Goliath. This is probably 150 years to 200 years after King David. Um, and beginning in verse 7, talking about Elijah, 
the prophet of God. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So Elijah went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me please a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and for my son that we may eat of it and die. Elijah said to her, verse 13, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and for your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her family. The jar of flour was not used up, the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. That is the section that we are looking at tonight, a very specific um, account of how God provides for his creation. All right, a couple of bullet points here in your workbook, if you're following along there. Uh, first, that the whole region was in the middle of a drought so severe that there was little food anywhere to eat. And God sent the prophet Elijah to a woman and her son in a town outside of Israel. This town is called Zarephath. So number 14, God sent Elijah to a widow who had virtually no food for herself and for her son. If you were that widow, that person, Elijah asked you for food, how might you have responded? Please bring me a crust of bread. Please bring me a glass of water. I need something. I'm going to die here. How would you respond? Well, I, uh, I might have said, well, good luck. Thanks. I wish I could help you, but I can't. Um, how might that, that's one possibility. Maybe, maybe you believe him, take him at his word and say, all right, I'll make you a tiny little cake of bread but um, we're all gonna die anyway. <laughs> a couple of different ways you could go with that. Um, you can just kind of give it a little bit of thought for yourself. Number 15, God promised, do I have that here too? God promised that the oil and the flour would not run out until it rained again. That's what God had said in verse 14. What would have made that promise difficult for believe? Verse 14, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not run out and the pitcher of oil will not become empty until the day the Lord sends rain to water the surface of the ground. What would have made that promise difficult to believe? <laughs> They're out of food. And this isn't typically the way that God provides food. You don't um, pour yourself a bowl of Cheerios and, um, and put it back in a cupboard and, and have the exact same amount of Cheerios in the box. You don't, you know, crack a few eggs and then close up the carton and bring out that carton again and it's full of a dozen eggs. God doesn't normally provide that way. Was there anything about the woman? This goes on to the next page in your workbook. 
Was there anything about the woman, her son, or Elijah that would cause God to work such a miracle to take care of them? Now, why them? Did they deserve it more? Were they more trusting, more willing, more able? Well, no. But in his mercy, God chose to provide for Elijah, and he provided for Elijah through that widow and her family. And, um, and in the process, God also provided for the widow and her son in a very special and unique way, in a miracle. Number 17 lists several important truths that we can learn from the account of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. Several important truths. Um, maybe about priorities, maybe, you know, the truth that God provides at all times, that, that God is always good, and God could have, um, could have let them all starve to death and still have been a God of love. He still could have been, let them starve to death and be a good God, um, because his goodness and his love do not depend on his action toward us, but are a result of his action toward us or his, yeah, his goodness and his love result in his actions toward us. Um, what else? God cares for his people. He has the power to provide through miracles if he chooses, if God, and if God makes a promise, we can be certain that he'll keep it. That was that special promise that the jar of oil and flour would never run out. Number 18, God does not typically provide for us through miracles, though he certainly can, and he certainly does. Read Psalm 104, verse 14, uh, there on your screen. How does God typically provide the things that we need? Psalm 104, verse 14. God makes grass grow for the cattle and plants that people use to produce fruit, food from the earth. How does God typically provide the things that we need? Well, in natural means. Um, rain that falls on the ground and the seed that's in that ground soaks up some of the rain and sprouts and then becomes a tree or, or other vegetable or kale. <laughs> Hooray! And beets and chard and all, all those good things. Um, God typically provides for us through natural means, not supernatural like miracles. Which gets to our key term, um, natural means. That those are the processes that God built into the creation to, for taking care of us. For example, food from plants through sunlight and rain, um, parents taking care of their children, etc. Natural means, the natural order that God has built into his creation for things to happen, um, for his creation to be taken care of. Our other key term, miracle. A miracle is an event by which God provides for us directly, not using the natural means that he built in, into creation. For instance, suddenly healing a disease, you know, like when Jesus um, would heal the sick or snap his fingers or touch, touch somebody's eyes and then all of a sudden they were able to see or walk or whatever, um, um, suddenly providing food out of nowhere, a miraculous thing, such as the food, the flour and the oil in the widow's jar, um, or Elisha, the one after Elijah. Elisha provided some miraculous food for people. Jesus provided miraculous food in the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Um, these are all miracles that go outside of the norm, um, supernatural events. 
Number 19, this is kind of a longer, longer discussion question, but it kind of leads into the blue box at the bottom of this page of your workbook. Number 19, one of the privileges that Christians cherish is the privilege of coming to God in prayer and expressing our needs, trusting that he hears us and that he'll supply the things we need. When Jesus' disciples once asked him to teach them how to pray, he gave them the prayer that we have come to call the Lord's Prayer. This wonderful model prayer is made up of seven petitions or seven requests. As we go through this course, we'll look at the various petitions as they relate to the subject of each unit. We'll cover prayer in more detail in Lesson 13. If you're unfamiliar with the Lord's Prayer, you can read the prayer and Luther's explanations for each part in Appendix 1 at the back of your workbook. Read the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer at the bottom of the page and Psalm 145 verses 15 and 16. Whether God provides through miracles or by natural means, what can you be certain that God will always do for you? Well, he's going to provide what he knows that we need. The fourth petition at the bottom of the page, give us today our daily bread. What does this mean? God surely gives daily bread without our asking, even to all the wicked. We pray in this petition that he would lead us to realize this and to receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. What then is meant by daily bread? In this part, it looks like a paragraph, it's all one sentence. Okay, here goes. Daily bread includes everything that we need for our bodily welfare, such as food and drink, clothing and shoes, house and home, land and cattle, money and goods, a godly spouse, godly children, godly workers, godly and faithful leaders, good government, good weather, peace and order, health, a good name, good friends, faithful neighbors, and the like. And there's more. Daily bread that God provides what we need doesn't always match up with what we want but he provides what he knows that we need uh, daily bread the things that we need to keep our body in life talking about needs primarily when you talk about daily bread and uh, when you talk about that part of the lord's prayer our other key term tonight kind of a heavy on the on the key terms tonight um, that God takes care of the universe he created through natural means and or through miracles. Um, he certainly has the ability to do miracles. His normal mode of operating is through natural means, by sending the sun, sending the rain, um, having animals eat the plants and turn those, those fibrous plants into delicious things like steak. <laughs> All right. Uh, next part. Number 20, read Jesus's words in Matthew 6, verses 25 through 33. It's there on your page. Why has God promised to take care of us and provide for us? It reads like this. Jesus said, for this reason, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Which of you can add a single moment to his lifespan by worrying? Why do you worry about clothing? Consider how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, but I tell you that not even Solomon in all his glory was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not clothe you even more, you little so do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the unbelievers chase after all these things, 
Certainly your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Why has God promised to take care of us and provide for us? The exact same reason that he chose to take care of Elijah and that widow. Not because we have earned or deserved it, but because he loves us. He proves it by obviously continuing to provide for us. He proved it most of all by giving his son for your salvation and mine. So number 21, if we worry about food or clothes, what does that say about our trust in God? For what we just read here, um, just up here in number 59, um, the unbelievers chase after all these things, worrying. Why do you worry? God clothes you, clothes the field. The unbelievers chase after all these things. And so if we worry about food, food and clothes, well, worry says that we don't trust God to help and provide. Sometimes that's kind of a harsh pill to swallow um, that we, we justify and explain away the worry. And there's a difference between worry and proper Christian concern. Um, but worry is not an attitude of faith. And, and I'm not saying that like to say, buck up and stop worrying, um, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get the worry out of your life. And here's five ways to make that happen now. I'm saying that so that we recognize the stranglehold that the devil wants on our hearts and on our lives. And, um, and we don't want him to have a foothold. And he loves to use our emotions, to play on our emotions, to make us worry about these things so that we get distracted from our Jesus and start focusing and chasing after all the things that the unbelieving world chases after. Um, which is number 22. What's the difference between worry and concern? Well, worry expresses doubt that God has a solution. Concern acknowledges a problem and trusts God to help. Um, worry, like I'm so worried that some plane or meteor is going to fall out of the sky and crush me. Concern, when your teenager grabs the keys and it's snowing, there's already pinches of snow on the ground and they're calling for like five more inches and it's late at night and the roads are slippery and your teenager says, oh, I'm just going over to uh, so-and-so's house, you know, 20, 20 minutes away um, on the highway. <laughs> I'm going over there and I'll, and I'll be back, you know, sometime later tonight. Um, proper Christian concern looks at our specific responsibilities. In this case, the responsibility to watch out for your own child and says um, that there's a problem here. And I take, my, take care of the responsibility that God has entrusted to me by taking care of this particular situation. <laughs> Trust God to help. And, um, and part of the way that God helps is by entrusting you with responsibility in some cases. That's proper Christian concern. Number 23, God also takes care of us by protecting us from bad things. Read the seventh petition of the Lord's Prayer. We did that. In Psalm 50, verse 15, what is one way that God deals with bad things that come into our lives? Uh, Psalm 50, verse 15, because I didn't have that one right here. Um, it reads like this. Let's see. Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will honor me. One way that God deals with bad things that come into our lives 
Sometimes he rescues us from trouble. Sometimes, you know, cancer goes into remission, never to be heard from again. Sometimes um, God intervenes supernaturally in a way that we would never know. Uh, read Psalm 91, verses 9 through 12. What is another thing that God might do with the bad things in our lives? Um, Psalm 91, beginning in verse 9. If you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord, who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you, no disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. All right. So sometimes God might stop bad things before they come. He might send his angels and you or I would never know it. Um, the angels are holy, we are not, but God sends them to serve you and me, to serve those who will inherit salvation. And um, Jesus didn't die for the angels. The angels aren't to be worshipped, <laughs> right? Um, but when some angels sinned, then God confirmed them in the wickedness, so they were unable to repent. That's the devil and his demons. And there are other good angels whom God sends to serve you and me, sometimes to prevent bad things from happening. Which gets to our key term, um, angel, at the bottom of the page, God's messengers whom he sends to take care of us. We usually don't see them or know that they were there. Um, and that's fine. That way we're not distracted from worshiping our God and and getting caught up in chasing these events with angels. Number 25, read Romans 8, verse 28. And for we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What is another thing that God will do with the bad things in our lives? Well, his promise to you as a Christian is that he will turn bad events, you know, uncomfortable or evil, morally evil, events um, into a blessing for you. He doesn't, we don't know always exactly how that blessing works out or what type of blessing it is, um, but that is his promise that he is going to work it out to be a blessing for you. Number 26, how can we show our thanks to God for providing us for us and preserving us? Well, being content and thankful for all the things that he's given to us and taking care of those gifts, taking care of the responsibilities that he's given to us as well. And questions. I think we have one connection question down at the bottom in the orange box. What Bible, and this one will um, be part of your homework, I suppose. What Bible passage that we studied in this lesson do you find to be particularly encouraging or comforting as you think about challenges you are currently facing or may face in the future? Um, that'll be part of your homework. And your homework is there in the, let's see, I think that's a black box at the bottom. Uh, there's some reading from Luther's Small Catechism. If you don't have one yet, I can get you one this Sunday or early next week. Um, and the Catechism is helpful because it's a concise summary of these teachings. Um, along with, you know, a compendium of a lot of the verses for why we say these things, because it helps to, helps to summarize things in a way that is easy to get a handle on, all right? 
um, and review those key terms, all of those in purple. This was a very term heavy lesson. If you have any questions about any of those terms, let me know. So I think that is everything. Thanks for joining us. We'll close with prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for your blessing of creation. Thank you for creating us to be your special, your special people, for redeeming us to make your own, renewing your image within us, and promising to take care of us in all things. Grant that we trust your promise today and always. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us. God bless your evening.